0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Central, if you're a guest of ours. My name is Craig, and it is my privilege today to open the scriptures to you. If you have a Bible, please turn to First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles 29. If you haven't brought a copy of the scriptures with you and don't have it available in an electronic format, then you can simply raise your hands in the air at this point and our team of ushers will be delighted to give you a copy of the scriptures. Uh, today my message is entitled The Vision and The Gift and I'm going to just lead into our offering in just a few moments with thoughts from this passage. If you are receiving a copy of the scriptures from our then you will be able to turn to page 427, 427. Now some background to this particular passage. First Chronicles 29 is actually written at the end of David's life. Many of you will know about David. David was a man of passion, bright victories, but incredible moments of defeat. He stumbled, he fell, he rose up, he dreamed, and he built In the passage we look at today, right at the end of David's life, we discern that God's future is always worth the sacrifice. Right at the end of his life, David recognized how important it was to invest in the future of other people. Now think about that. There are many leaders in the world today and many people in the world today who will only take a step of sacrifice when the conditions are perfect. If everything is perfect and just right, then they'll move forward. But through this stronger series, we've discovered that Joshua and Caleb and indeed the people of God were asked to jump into the Jordan at flood stage. And here, David is at the end of his life, and he's being tasked with taking that step forward. Hardly ideal circumstances. See, some people wait to make a commitment, a step of sacrifice, when everything is perfect. But here, these two character sets, Joshua, Caleb, and David, they don't wait for perfection. Rather, in sacrifice, they prefer action. They do not count the cost. They simply recognize the transformation that their sacrifice brings. David recognized something that we do well to never forget. Death is the ultimate delete key. Calvin Miller wrote a book extracting leadership lessons from the life of David, and he wrote these words. Death eliminates the future. David died on the threshold of other people's futures. This is the context for our story in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. The conditions aren't perfect, but David is a man of vision. He sees a moment of significance. He sees a window of opportunity, and he embraces the challenge that's before him. David, in a sense, is a thoroughly Jewish male in this point in time. You see, in the Jewish context, remembering the past was tantamount to being faithful in the present. David was fundamentally Jewish because he recognized that he stood today on the foundation of people's sacrifice yesterday. And he recognized too that his son Solomon and the people of God would move into their future on the basis of what David would do today. That's a thoroughly Jewish concept, but it's one that is almost being forgotten today. But as a word of encouragement to you all, let me just say this. The only way to deal with this desire, this temptation for immediate gratification is to remember the significance of yesterday for our today and the significance of today for tomorrow. This is the context. David stands at the end of his life and he recognizes that his actions today in this critical juncture, for the people of God, would make a fundamental contribution to other people's futures. So with this in mind, I want you to pick up the the key idea today, and it's simply this. At a strategic times, God's people seize the moment to build bridges to the future through personal devotional and additional sacrifice. This is what David does. And later on in the service, we get the opportunity, the privilege of making David's example our personal experience. Have a look with me, if you will, to First Chronicles, at chapter 29, as we begin to read from verse one. Then King David said to the whole assembly, my son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. Wow, I-, I would hate for someone to say that about me in public, wouldn't you? This is this is Solomon's dad just calling him out before the entire congregation. Hey, this guy's young; he's inexperienced. People, uh, he needs your help. And then he continues: the task is great. Because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. This palatial structure is not for man, it is for the Lord God. As we prepare to commit generously, sacrificially, to the future that God has for us, I think we need to recognize that sacrifice commences with a vision and a task. This is the point of verses 1 and 2. Now David, just like Moses before him, wasn't permitted to build the temple of God. In the way that Moses wasn't permitted to lead God's people into the promised land, God tells David, David, it is not being given to you to build the temple. But there was a vision. If you read at home 1 Chronicles chapter 28, that's what the vision was. So this sacrifice that David is about to do himself and call the leaders in the congregation into begins with a definite vision and a definite task. They're going to build the temple of God. Now, having said that, there is something so significant here because what David wouldn't see in, in the flesh, he saw by faith and David's faith is visionary because his vision makes provision for the task. I hope you see this. When God gives you a vision, there is, a, there is the need for provision. And so in chapter 29, we're talking about the provision for the vision. Provision for the vision. God has given us a vision. And whenever you have a vision, bless you, whenever you have a vision, The sound is great in this place. Whenever you have a vision, there is the need to make provision for the vision. That's essentially what David does. But I I want you to note the words he uses as he addresses the congregation. Having just outed Solomon as young and inexperienced, he then says this. The task is great because this palatial, structure is not for man but for the Lord. That word palatial structure is used seldomly throughout the Old Testament. It's used I believe in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 2 where it talks about a fortress or a citadel. That's the meaning of the word. And so here is David Having told the people in chapter 28 what the vision is and now coming to the task, he uses a word here that really isn't that appropriate, a word to talk about the temple. The temple isn't a fortress. The temple isn't a citadel. So why on earth does David use this word when he comes to talk about the temple of God? Well, this is basically an image of what David had in mind. This is Solomon's temple that would have been built. You can see why David would have used the word palatial structure. This facility was magnificent. David uses the word palatial structure because Egypt had its pyramids, the Greeks had the Parthenon, the Babylonians would have the hanging garden, and the conversation amongst the people would have been, what will we have? What's going to be ours? And so to deal with this kind of motivating desire amongst the people, David says, this palatial structure is not for man. It's not for you. It's actually for the Lord God. You see, when we call for provision for the vision, the driving motive, David is telling us, has to be pure. And it's very easy when you get into a building project as a religious community of any kind for the motive to be impure. I'm sure you'd all agree with that. Who are we really doing this for? David was aware of that conversation because it was a current conversation for them. Babylon had the hanging gardens. Egypt has the pyramids. The Greeks have the Parthenon. What are we going to have, David? And his answer is nothing. Oh, we're we're being called to build. We're being called to build a temple, but this temple is not for us. This temple is for him. Whenever there is a call for provision, for a vision, the leaders have to do business with what is the driving motive. Why are you doing this? David addresses this in his prayer at the end of the chapter. Look at this in verse 17. I know, he says, my God, that you test the hearts and are pleased with integrity. All these things everything he's about to to find out he's going to do. All of these things I have done willingly and with, look at this, honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people are here to give to you. Let me just say this. People come in here and they say, wow, this facility is amazing. Some people have even come to us and said, wow, we're going to build more space? Let me just say, the size is not a problem to God. What is a problem with God is when the motives are impure. God wants the motives for any vision that the congregation are being challenged to provide for to be pure. And church, there is only one appropriate motive for the sacrifice required of God in this hour, and that is the worship of God. Nothing more is required, and nothing less than that will do. And today, we are being challenged to give, and the reason we give is we want the name of God to be honored, the word of God to be taught to all people of every generation, and by God's grace, the church of God to be built. And lest we forget, it is the spirit of God who does that building, not the hands of men. As we have gone through this, this vision, this has been one of those things that the pastors on our staff, the executive team, the elders, we've wrestled with. Why are we doing this? And I stand before you as someone who is 100% aware that only the right motives will do. We give for the glory of God to be seen through us in Holland to the very ends of the world. Nothing else is called for and nothing less will do. And church, may it always stay that way. So here we see then that this vision begins with a requirement for provision. And David says, listen, this is a big task, but our motives here have to be pure. Only the worship of God will do. We're not in the business, David says, of competing with the Greeces and the, the Babylons and, and the Egyptians of this world. And, and then what we see is the story moves on in, in verse two uh, to talk about a sacrifice that continues through generosity. So it commences with a vision and a task, and it continues through generosity. What we discover in verse 2 is that David says that with all of his resources, he has provided for the temple of his God. So even until this point in the project, David says, I have given regularly, I have given faithfully, I have given devotedly. But then in verse 3, there's a shift. Many people understand the requirement, spiritually speaking, not the law, the spiritual necessity of giving regularly, devotedly, personally to the ongoing ministry of the church. Well, we get that. When it comes to the idea of giving additionally, that's where we struggle. Well, verse two quite clearly points us back to David saying, I give regularly, I give devotedly, I give faithfully to the ministry that is being conducted through the priests in our community. I I do this. But then he says this in verse three. Besides, in all my devotion, to the temple of my God, I, look at this word, now give. This is what I've done, verse two. This is what I'm gonna do, verse three. I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver to the temple of my God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. Are are you seeing this? There is an act that is additional. So we see giving here that is personal. It is devotional. It's only for the worship of God, not for the glory of his name. But now we also see it's additional. It's over and above. Now what David does here is remarkable. He says, I give my personal treasures, my personal treasures. This is a a small example, personal treasures. See, The word that David uses for personal treasures is the Hebrew word segula. It refers to a kind of a treasure chest that would have been a lot bigger than this that would have sat or stood right by the side of where the king sat. This segula was basically the king's personal uh, security in times of political distress or personal hardship. What David is saying in this moment is that I want to, and I'm going to give my entire personal fortune, my security, and the security, and I'm going to invest the security of my family for the vision that God has given us to do. That's a, a truly remarkable step, isn't it? It's little wonder by the time we'll drop down to verse 5 and verse 6, the congregation of people are stunned. David, you're giving your segula. Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone be willing to invest their own security in a vision that God has given The simple answer, of course, is because God has said, but why would we believe that that would be what God has told us to do? To understand this, you need to understand the, the context and the development of this word segula within the ancient scriptures. It's used, as we see here, to refer to the treasure of kings. But the real background for this is actually God's treasure. The word is used eight times in the Old Testament, twice to refer to the treasure of kings, and six times it refers to God's treasure. As is frequently the case with passages like this, the scripture of most importance is the scripture of first reference. Where is this scripture first used? And you'll see it used here in Sinai. In this moment, some of you may remember the, the picture that Brad put up on the screen of, the, of Mount Sinai. It's there in Sinai as the, rat, as the covenant has been ratified between God and Israel that this word is used. God tells them, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my secular. You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And guess what? God said that not only about the people of the Old Testament, but First Peter actually says that's who we are. We are God's treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So why is David willing to do this? David is willing to invest his personal security because his security actually comes from the one who owned the whole world and had chosen the nation of Israel, As his treasured possession. And in such a season of sacrificial, uh, such a season of need, David's security is in the God who gave, not in the money he'd saved. Do you see this? The reason anybody gives additional is because they know this truth. And isn't this what Pastor Kevin talked about last week? You see, something, something new, something true. You respond to a new truth. You discover a new truth and it leads you to a new trade. You trade up. But we're only willing to trade up if we recognize that this is the truth. We give of our treasures because guess what? We are his treasure. We are his people. We are his chosen people in this world. And God says, Give back to me what I have given back to you. You know, we live in a world where this truth is often missed. But McConville has wise words for us in this season. He says, often the extent to which we are prepared to risk our material well-being is a measure of the seriousness with which we take our discipleship. If we understand that the reason we give our treasures, is because we are his treasures, then we clearly take our discipleship seriously. So you see where this begins? It begins with a vision and a task, and then sacrifice continues with generosity. And then thirdly, what we realize in this point of the story is this kind of sacrifice champions a response from the people. There is this response from verse 6 through verse 9 that we now see happening in the lives of the people. This sacrifice begins in verse 5 where David asks this question. Now, having seen my willingness to be sacrificial, David says, and he now looks at the leaders that are there, the princes, the rulers, and then the entire congregation, and he asks them this question. Which of you, who among you is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? When we unveiled this Water's Edge vision on May the 3rd, 2015, we referenced you to the passage of Joshua where, where God was telling Joshua and Caleb, jump in. We recognized that we were standing at the Water's Edge and God was calling us to Jump. God was calling us to take that step of faith, and the verse that stuck out to us was, when God came to Joshua and said, Joshua, this is what I want you to do. I want you to consecrate yourselves, because tomorrow I will do an incredible work through you. It's remarkable that at significant seasons, in the, in the journey in the development of God's people, there is this command to jump in, even when circumstances don't seem to be ideal, they're less than perfect, But more remarkable than this challenge to sacrifice is that we see the presence of this word consecrate. In other words, God is saying to them, listen, I'm going to do a remarkable thing through you, but before I can do anything through you, I need to do something in you. And David here asks this question to the entire congregation. Who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Who is willing to allow God to do something in them as they respond generously following David's example in order for him to do something incredible through them? Now this word consecrate is the word malah. It's a Hebrew word that basically means to fill. I was telling the guys in the prayer room before this, I would love to spend just about 30 minutes going through the significance of the word fill. Go read the Genesis creation accounts. After God created Adam and Eve and all the animals, what does he say? Go fill, go fill the, the earth. It's the word Malach. go consecrate the earth. Go fill it. It it means to fill. Now, it's also in this text accompanied by another word, which is yad, which is the hand. Who is willing to fill their hands to the Lord today? That's what consecration means. Having seen David's generous example, the people are now challenged to an act of consecration which is tantamount to filling our hands before God. Now, in that place, on that day, there would have been a whole diverse group of people. Archaeologists and commentators will tell us that David's total contributions to the temple and the building of it would have been over $17 billion by current measurements. I don't think everyone was able to contribute $17 billion, do you? And you can imagine some of them standing there thinking, David, this is really cool for you, but you know, uh, I, I don't know whether I can do this. In 2010, I took my son, uh, Jordan, to see Jonas's baseball game Jordan would have been about four at the time and as, as the game was going on Jordan came to me and said hey dad can you give me some money I'd like to buy some skittles from the concession stand and I looked and I'm sitting there and I didn't want to really leave the game so I looked and the concession stand was just over there and I thought I can do that so I opened my wallet it's the first time i had done this kind of thing and so I opened up my wallet I didn't know much they cost I gave him two bucks and I said there you go go buy yourself a bag of Skittles. Well, the guy was pretty smart, even at the age of four, because they were one buck each. He came back with two. And so he comes back, he sits by the side of me, and I say, and he opens the bag, and he starts to eat. His mother wasn't there. She wouldn't have liked that kind of thing, but anyway, she's not a candy girl herself, but um, and he's, he's there. He's starting to eat these Skittles, and I look at Geordie and I say, Geordie, can I have some Skittles? And he says, no. <laughs> I, and I'm like, Jordan, please, could I have some Skittles? And he's like, no, they're mine. (laughs) And and, you know, in in this moment, I thought, Jordy, there are three things that you don't know. (laughs) Firstly, you got those Skittles through my money, not yours. Secondly, Jordan, I'm thinking, if you would only understand how strong I am, it would take me nothing at all to reach over and to remove these two bags of Skittles from your four-year-old little hands. I am much stronger than you think I am. And thirdly, Jordan, do you not realize that I could give you so much money that you could go over to that concession stand and you could buy every bag of Skittles that that stand has got. Don't you understand that? But rather than tell him all of that, I looked at him and said, come on, Geordie, give me a Skittle. No, they're mine. It's remarkable, isn't it, with children sometimes, as they grow up, that attitude can sometimes still be there. Just this week, I looked at Jordan and I said, it was a baseball game." And afterwards, he bought some popcorn, and I said, "Hey, Jordan, can I have some popcorn?" And he looked at me, and I think he must have remembered the lessons of the past. He went, "Oh." (laughs) There, there is something in us that, when it comes to filling our hands in offering, there's something hardwired into us, even from the time that we're young, that sees this kind of thing as unnatural. And yet remarkably, in the text, okay, as David models this kind of generosity, the experience on behalf of a people, who would probably be very much like Jordan, was totally transformed. The people rejoiced at the willingness of their leaders for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord and David the king also rejoiced greatly. Something happens when generosity is modeled and yet the reality is, that's not often the way that we feel. And you see, people are in there that day. Not everyone was able to give as much as David could But David wasn't calling for equal giving. What he was calling for was equal consecration. He was saying whether you've got the kind of wealth that I have or the kind of wealth that most people have, all you need to do is to be willing to fill your hands with what God has given you. And the reality in this text is that it's David's generosity that championed the response. How much, like Jordy, do you think we can be? How many times have you heard it said, well, when I go to church and in seasons like this, all they ever do is talk about money? Ah, For a point, I think it's probably one of the first times I've actually talked about money. But there is that feeling, isn't it? It, it? it just comes over us. It's there. It's heavy. It's present. It's real. But what I'd like you to do, if that feeling ever comes over you, just remember the story of the Skittles. Just realize that we, we may not be talking about Skittles. I'm going to put these in my office, and if any of you want one, you could go for the bottom, I would. <laughs> if this thought ever comes over to you, then, then just learn the lesson of the Skittles. If you ever feel that there is an opportunity of incredible need standing right in front of you that calls you and asks you and invites you to sacrifice your security for someone else's future and you ever find yourself thinking, no, it's mine, then remember three lessons. The first lesson that you need to remember is it's not yours, it's his. And in a season like this, all we are is a little child buying daddy a gift with daddy's money that's the way it works David recognizes this in the text it's what we read praise be to you lord god of israel from everlasting to everlasting yours lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and where? And earth is yours. Everything is his. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from who? From him. You are the ruler of all things. And in a few moments, we're going to have the opportunity to hold our our commitment cards in the hand. And as this response is, is being championed, what we're doing is we're recognizing, God, this isn't mine, it's yours. And just as you made the world and consecrated it by giving the gift of me to this world, in the same way, I am filling my hands with what you have given me And I'm gifting it back to you because it's yours. Second, just remember that God is strong enough to just kind of lean over and take every single skittle that you have away from you. What did Jesus say? If you have not been trustworthy in handling your skittles, yes, that's my word. It doesn't really say that in the Bible. <laughs> who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, then who will give you property of your own? You know what Jesus is saying there? If we don't recognize that everything we have and own is his property, he will never, ever reward us with the true riches that comes from him. That's not prosperity theology. It's just what the text says. Thirdly, as we fill our hands and we give, then we recognize that we are giving to a God who can do abundantly more with what we have left than we can possibly think or imagine. So we had this sacrifice that commenced with a vision and a task. It continued through David's generosity. That generosity was such that it championed a response from everyone who was there, not with equal giving, but with equal consecration, people being willing to fill their hands with what they had. And then the end of this passage is that it concluded in praise. This section that I just read of the prayer is a remarkable section of scripture. I encourage you to go home and feast on this text. But the first time, even as a young boy, I read 1 Chronicles 29 as I was reading through the Bible as a teenager. There's one verse that stuck with me and altered the way I thought about giving for the rest of my life. It's verse 14. Look at this with me. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Does that not do something to you? Does that not change your way of thinking about giving? There's David, $17 billion gone. They're all the kings. All of the people, some of them can only give a few Skittles. And they give it. And then David says this. Who are we that we can possibly be as generous as this? When I read that verse, it changed my perspective of giving completely. Whenever I put anything in, actually sometimes I feel really bad with the offering plate because I I give electronically, and if you do that, uh, the plate passes you by and you're like, oh Lord, I don't want people to think I'm not giving. (laughs) But whenever I give, I say, God, who am I that I should be able to give as generously as this? See, whether we like it or not, we didn't have much of a choice about where we were born and to whom we were born. For some of us, that invokes bad memories. For many of us in here, that invokes great memories. Who are we that we should be blessed with families like that? Who are we today that we should be blessed enough to be able to write an amount of any kind on any kind of card. Who are we that we should actually be blessed enough to probably many of us go out of here today and enjoy a lunch with a restaurant with some of our family and friends? Who are we to be blessed in this way? What a privilege. What a privilege it is to give. The passage ends with this verse, they ate and drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. They rejoiced. I doubt we'll be doing that here. Not the eating and drinking, that's for sure. But you see the celebration that it invoked. Who are we that we should give as generously as this? Over the course of the last few months, I've had a number of letters from people in our congregation that have just epitomized this, uh, this spirit, I, I wanna close by reading just a few of what, they've, of what they've said. One couple wrote to me and told me how they were giving to the Stronger Challenge because their children grew up in this church from third grade through all the way through. They, they wrote to me and said, they are so thankful for our student ministries and how those student ministries helped develop their worldview. They're so thankful for the missions opportunities that, ex- that happened because it changed their perspective and helped them realize how blessed they are. And they said, all of these things have been given to us because people d- deemed it important to invest in the development of me and of my family. And now on the other side of this, they said, we are delighted. We we are thrilled to be able to step up in the stronger challenge because we know we know firsthand what a blessing it does to those people that are here and those people that are still to come in here do you know what they were saying who are we that we should be as blessed to give as generously as this another couple in a completely different life stage she wrote to me and shared how as this stronger challenge was going on they were wrestling through what they should give they didn't have massive wealth like David did, but rather they had skittles. They looked at their their lifestyle, and they were committed to giving in a way that would change their lifestyles. And so they said, this is what we do. On Saturday evenings, it's our our, um, regular kind of thing with young kids to get get a movie in, to get meals and everything else, and here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna sacrifice this, and we do so gladly and willingly for the stronger challenge. And we're excited about what God is gonna do. You know what they were saying? Who are we? that we should give as generously as this. Another couple wrote to me and said how in the face of a, of a challenge like this, God was speaking to their heart. They'd been saving up in order to go self-employed, to start their own business. And as an, an opportunity like this came to them, they basically sensed God saying to them, give up that entire year's salary that you have saved for your business and invest it into something like this. You know what they're saying? Who are we that we should give as generously as this? Church, it's time for us to fill our hands with whatever God has blessed us with, whatever God has spoken to our heart. As we do this, I'm just going to invite you into a moment of quiet. The worship team will come back the ashes will come down with the offering plates and then we'll fill our hands. For some of us, it'll be our regular giving. Some of us will put something in for the first time, recognizing that this is an area that we need to grow in. Some of us, we've prayed through this, we've wrestled through this and we recognize that God is calling us to, to sacrifice, to take that step of generosity. Whatever it is, let's give with the spirit that says, God, thank you that I have this treasure and thank you, that we can give as generously as this. Bow your heads, let's go to God in prayer. Father, in this moment, we thank you that everything in heaven and on earth belongs to you, everything. So, Father, in this moment, as we respond through giving, giving of our tithes, our offerings, and today, giving of our secular, giving over and above, we just pray that you would take what is given and that you would transform lives. We pray that your name would be glorified, We pray that the word of God would be taught to people of every generation, tribe, tongue, and race through this church. And we pray, Father, that the church of God would be built, and we invite you, Holy Spirit, to do that task. We do all of this, and we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.